Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Uh, this week, again, uh, we are back at it with our flights podcasts uh, and the recap of our flights case series. Happy to be joined this week by Dr. Andrew Latimer, the resident assistant medical director for air care, uh, as well as Bill Hinckley, the medical director for air care, who uh, will both be kind of recapping this case for us. To start off, kind of, let's just go ahead and go over what the case actually was. So, this was a 56-year-old gentleman, uh, no known medical history that you have uh, available to you, unhelmeted motorcyclist, basically found in a ditch about 40 feet from his motorcycle, discovered sort of in the middle of the road by a passing motorist. So no one really saw this accident go down. The bike was sort of down a little curve in a rural farm road, and the EMS that responded just has BLS capabilities only. And the patient's on a backboard, backboard and loaded into the, the back of the EMS stretcher. You arrive and you see his vitals uh, with a pulse of 122, blood pressure of 84 over 52, respiratory rate of 24, and oxygen saturation of 84%. He's being ventilated with bag valve mask ventilation. He's got multiple abrasions and contusions throughout his entire sort of anterior body, just tons of road rash everywhere. And we walk into the ambulance, you immediately are hit with a whiff of, uh, of emesis. Looking at his head, he's got a, a stable mid-face, um, although his face is covered in a abrasions like the rest of his body. He's got a really large boggy area to his sort of right temple and a large laceration there that's actively bleeding. Cardiovascular exam, you know he's tachycardic, uh, but he does have palpable radial pulses. Pulmonary exam, he's got a little bit of decreased breath sounds on the left and some crepitus palpable in this area, as well as some subtle paradoxical movements of his chest wall. His belly is rigid. On your extremity exam, you note that he's got a shortened and internally rotated left leg, and his left arm is obviously broken with a mid-shaft deformity, which does look to be closed. His pelvis doesn't have any instability, um, and uh, he doesn't really grimace with pain when you compress it. Uh, neurologically, uh, he is not doing all that hot. With deep, painful stimuli, he sort of grunts, opens his left eye, and withdraws to pain, um, and that's what we're dealing with. So let's kind of get started here with uh, the first questions that we had available to us. So question one and two kind of go go hand in hand and are basically a little bit about what's your assessment of this patient, what's possibly wrong with them, and uh, what are you going to do about it and how are you going to sequence those. And that's really, I think, the heart of the, the manager of this is how do you sequence all these things that need to happen with the patient. But maybe before we start talking about all of that, Bill, why don't you talk a little bit about what you're going to do as you're prepping to land and you get this EMS report coming over the radio of motorcyclists, you know, GCS of round eight, who is having assisted respirations in the back of the ambulance. What's going through your mind? In a case like that, uh, I am about as happy as I ever get. This is, this is what I live for. So I am stoked. But at the same time, I recognize that I've got a huge catecholamine load surging through me right now. And, and that's true for me after 500 flights, and that's certainly going to be true for somebody who's, uh, who's new to this job. And I think it's super important that we consciously do something to manage those catecholamines in a positive direction. There's been a, a lot of excellent work out there in the FOMED world about how to do that. Um, one of my favorite techniques was, uh, was touted by uh, Dr. Rich Levitan, the airway master, and he talks about STEP UP, which stands for self-talk to enhance performance under pressure. And the basic idea here is that with all those catecholamines, 
they're, they're going to drive you in some direction. They're going to drive your performance either in a positive or a negative direction. And the sort of thoughts that you fill your head with immediately before crunch time happens, you know, when you land and actually lay your hands on this patient, are going to determine that vector either in a positive or a negative direction. And so you want to fill your head with, with very positive imagery to drive that vector in a positive direction. Uh, and if you don't actively do that, then you're at risk of your head being filled with very negative thoughts that could drive that vector in a negative direction. So there's not a right way to do this, but personally for me, uh, the way I attack it is I, I physically smile, whether I feel like it or not, and in general, I would certainly feel like it in this case. But if you physically smile, even if you don't feel like it, that puts uh, positive vibes in your head. I take some nice, slow, deep, tactical breaths, and I, I have a mantra that I say to myself, which is the same thing every time, whether I'm in the helicopter, on the ground, in the ED, which is, this is freaking emergency medicine. This is exactly what I signed up for. Let's do it. All that, you know, it only takes a few seconds. And obviously, at the same time, you are actively maintaining your situational awareness and scanning for any potential hazards on the ground. And I would also be thinking about, you know, I've got my standard layout on the stretcher, my standard scene uh, layout, which is the Black Blackhawk bag, the Zolex, uh, an IV cell, and an oxygen tank. But if this patient is being bagged, then I would also think about bringing our portable suction along because people who get bagged very often vomit. And we're about to find out that he already smells like emesis. And a lot of times the suction on scene is not as optimal as I would like. So I would think about getting ready to grab the portable suction on the way out of the aircraft. And also if it looked like the patient was going to be very remote from where they were going to land us, then I would think about actually getting the cooler out of the aircraft. Otherwise, if they're right next to each other, usually we leave the cooler in the aircraft. Yeah, I think actually that's one of the one of the things that came out in the discussion. As we'll kind of get to, a lot of people did want to initiate some resuscitation prior to intubation. And ideally with this patient who likely has hemorrhagic shock simply because they're a trauma victim and they have this big mechanism of injury as well as the rigid abdomen and all the orthopedic injuries, you know, it'd be nice to give them blood as opposed to giving them crystalloid even for that initial resuscitation. So um, what's your guys' sort of cutoff as to, to think to yourself, okay, I'm going to get this cooler of blood out and I'm going to take that with me to the back of the ambulance versus, you know, is there maybe even a situation where you might take the patient from the back of the ambulance to the back of the helicopter and start the blood there? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. And this is something that I definitely uh, was putting some thought into reading these responses. Um, that can get complicated. Bringing the blood can get complicated logistically. If you don't remember to bring it and you don't get a good report and jump in the back of this squad and this patient's got a systolic pressure of 80, polytrauma, you're thinking that you need to transfuse blood. If you're up a hill a distance away, uh, you know, if the aircraft is off the roadway, the pilot may have stopped. These are the, these are the sort of cases where a lot of times you read it to the pilot and say, hey, it's going to be just a second. Um, but this is also an opportunity if the, if the pilot and the aircraft are off the roadway where you can actually ask them to grab some equipment for you. I've done that before. Um, but this gets complicated if you're on a freeway or you're in the middle of a major farm road or something and you've used that as a, a landing zone because your pilot often will stay hot during some of these scenarios, can't get out to help you out. And if there's a distance between you and the aircraft, it may not be practical to take one of the potentially two ALS plus providers available 
and send them on a five-minute errand when you have this patient quite so sick. So that could complicate things. Um, personally, if I get any report that a patient is a trauma patient and is hypotensive, I will reflexively grab the blood. I've done it a handful of times. I think I've only transfused maybe one time where we've actually gotten there, and it's been an accurate, uh, an accurate sort of report. But um, I never regretted it. Bringing it back was never an issue. Yeah, it... As with anything, you're weighing risks and benefits. The benefit to starting it on scene, if the patient is truly in hemorrhagic shock, you've just started their resuscitation with a product, which is actually going to help that hemorrhagic shock that much sooner. The downside is it probably is going to prolong your ground time. So in general, my practice is if LZ is right next uh, to where the patient is, um, I typically leave it in the aircraft if they're remote from each other, I typically bring it. If I hear that the patient is in arrest, I bring it. Um, but uh, otherwise, usually, even when I know the patient's in shock, I usually delay the starting of the product to, uh, to the flight back as opposed to on the ground just to try to minimize my ground time somewhat. Yeah, excellent thoughts. Excellent thoughts. It's tough decisions. It's you know you'll develop sort of different practice patterns as to what that cutoff to bring it is, but um, it is good to kind of start that resuscitation early. Um, so you know a basic assessment of this gentleman. He's a 56 year old guy, motorcycle crash, ejection, who is tachycardic, hypotensive, tachypnic, with decreased oxygen saturations, likely a significant traumatic brain injury as well as abdominal and chest trauma. So. What did uh, you guys sort of pull out as far as the possible pathologies or the big injuries that could be going on with him? One of, one of the first things that I would certainly be thinking about is why did the guy crash? Because there's no evidence that you know somebody plowed into him. Uh, just a single vehicle accident. Now it sounds like there was a curve involved, and you know maybe he just failed to negotiate that curve. Uh, but I'm also wondering, could there be some underlying medical problem that caused him to syncopize, pass out, etc.? So we always got to keep that in mind. Um, uh, Lance, what were you, what were your main thoughts in terms of from a trauma assessment? What you were worried about? The big thing here, obviously, is this guy's got a TBI, uh, among a number of other things, which complicates the whole situation pretty greatly. He's got significant chest trauma, so. It came up a lot that this gentleman may have a pneumothorax or a hemothorax, um, or potentially a tension pneumothorax. But what didn't get brought up all that much was pulmonary contusions, and that's something we see all, very often. Um, you know, I've only seen a handful of a true tension pneumothoraces ever, but a lot of these patients have these pulmonary contusions that can cause significant hypoxia if not you know managed appropriately. So that's something that we definitely want to consider as well. He's assuredly got some pulmonary contusions, flail chest, and then again, he's got a rigid abdomen. There's some intra-abdominal intra stuff. He can't tell us his pelvis is causing him pain or not, and our exam for assessing pelvic stability obviously is, is poor, and that's been well, kind of well established. So we've got to think about a big pelvic sore, especially in motorcycles. Those are the ones, those side impact car crashes and motorcycles are the two biggest kind of culprits for those uh, pelvic injuries. And then uh, obviously he's got this this femur or tab or whatever's broken down there. So lots of sources for bleeding. And again, he's got the scalp black, which we were discussing a little bit before the podcast, but something that uh, uh, didn't get addressed a ton either because it's not quite as sexy as some of these other injuries, but he could have he could easily be in hemorrhagic shock just from his scalp laceration. I mean, this guy has a ton of things that need to be done for him, a ton of possible things that could be wrong with him. Uh, Bill, how what's your what's your approach? How do you how are you gonna you know take step one on this guy, and what is step one for you? So a lot of people when they're doing their primary survey. Uh, 
in ATLS use an ABCDE approach. And I, I think that's okay, and it, certainly it's, it's an organized way to go about it. But uh, our friend Dr. Sturwald has convinced me to move uh, to the similar but slightly altered March algorithm, uh, which is something that is used by TCCC in the military setting. And March is basically the exact same thing, except you move to the front of the line, massive external hemorrhage. That's the M in March. And if there is a massive external hemorrhage going on, you address that first, before airway, before anything else. And so the, the case was a little bit vague in terms of how much that lack was bleeding. But if, if I saw, you know, a big pumper uh, coming from that scalp, as, as uh, Latimer said, you can absolutely die of hemorrhagic shock from a scalp lack and pretty quickly. So actually my first priority, if that thing is bleeding uh, largely, would be to get combat gauze on that and have somebody, probably not me, but one of the EMTs on scene hold very firm pressure on that to try to get that stopped. Now, the next thing I'm thinking about, it's clear that we are, uh, for two reasons, for failure to oxygenate and for inability to protect the airway, moving toward uh, needing to secure this guy's airway. As well as clinical course. I mean, he's going to need right. uh, transport and, and CTs and more resuscitation and who knows what in the OR and, and everything else too. Correct. And in general, our success rate for, uh, for RSI is a little bit higher on the ground than it is in the air, and we're going to have plenty to do in the air, so this is one that I would secure on the ground before taking off. The one thing I'm thinking uh, before committing to securing his airway is, does he have something rapidly reversible, basically meaning opioid toxicity or hypoglycemia, that I can fix and cure? Because That's uh, a cause of his altered mental status, specifically. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Uh, because if we could either give him Narcan or give him D50 and obviate the need for intubation, we've just helped the guy and uh, helped him avoid the risks that come with RSI. So I would be taking a look at his pupils to see if they're pinpoint, and if they are, I would try Narcan. And I would definitely, if EMS has not already checked his glucose, I, I would try to delegate to EMS because even a BLS squad should have a glucometer to check his glucose and make sure he's not hypoglycemic. I would still be doing all my preparations as if we are going to proceed with RSI. And I don't think doing checking those two things would delay anything at all because they can be done so quickly. Um, but I just I, I don't want to subject him to the risks of innovation if he happens not to need it. I think one of the interesting things with this gentleman is, you know, he's obviously very badly injured in a lot of different ways, and he has this uh, tachycardia, hypotension, and and low oxygen saturations, which obviously we all equate with the possibility of tension pneumothorax. But he also has a significant possibility of having sort of hemorrhagic hypovolemic nature to his shock, as well as obstructive. So, how would you guys in this particular patient? How would you guys sort through his you know, oxygenation status and his other hemodynamics? What are your steps to kind of start fixing those problems? So I started to talk about March, and I think to answer your question, let me go through the rest of what March is. So the, the A in March is airway, the R is respirations, C is circulation, and then the final H is head. Now, personally, I actually reverse the R and the A because... RSI takes several minutes to accomplish. And if a patient does have a tension pneumothorax, 
you know, they could they could die in three or four minutes from that tension pneumothorax if, if I delay treating that until I secure the airway, especially once I add positive pressure to that tension pneumothorax. So if I do think a tension pneumothorax is or may well be going on, I actually address that as I continue preparing for RSI. So I agree with the, the many people who commented that, that they would empirically go ahead and treat for attention pneumothorax. Now, at the same time, I agree with Latimer that he may well not have it. He, he may well just have uh, a flail chest and pulmonary contusion. But if he does have attention pneumothorax and we don't empirically treat it and this guy doesn't do well and he ends up getting an autopsy which shows an untreated attention pneumothorax, how are you ever going to sleep with that? Um, and uh, so personally, if the guy is small enough that I feel comfortable that my angiocath is going to reach his pleura, I, w- I would take literally two seconds and empirically needle that. Which side of the chest is it? The uh, left. Left side, yeah. Um, as I continue preparing for RSI. Um, and then I would, you know, depending on the results of that, uh, I, if, if it was successful, I would probably plan to go ahead at some point post-RSI and open that up into a finger thoracostomy. If I didn't get any rush of air and I felt sure that the guy was small enough that my needle had reached the pleura, then basically I'm not going to worry about tension pneumothorax anymore. But so many of our patients are big enough now that we still have some question of whether or not we've reached the pleura with an angiocath, in which case then we may want to think about a uh, finger thoracostomy. Sir, I'm interested in your thoughts. Take it from there. Yeah, I agree. Um, I agree with most of what you said there, essentially. Um, Our one thought in a discussion that we'd had kind of as we were preparing this talk again is that sometimes we maybe jump to the finger thoracostomy a little early. And obviously you read these case reports where a finger thoracostomy has gone through the diaphragm or has gone into the spleen of the liver. And I've not done one on a patient in in the pre-hospital setting that's had a pulse. But again, there are some special situations that you'd mentioned. Patients that are too big, you're not confident that you've gotten to the pleura. Patients that you needle, you get improvement in symptoms. You know, their their SATs come up, maybe their blood pressure comes up. You're confident that you, you've improved their status with that. Then maybe it deco- they decompensate again on positive pressure. You needle again, maybe it's not effective and you're worried that now you developed a new, you know, th- those are the sorts of cases exactly like you said that I would do it. Um, there were some folks that went, straight to finger thoracostomy and I definitely would give a 10 gauge needle or two a try especially the kind of the anterior approach and then the axillary the high axillary approach which can be really effective in muscular or bigger people just because there's less tissue there and we've got a nice uh, a nice uh, taming the shrew article on that as well if folks want to reference that and the one other thing that we didn't really talk about yet on the podcast is um, that sometimes with these pulmonary contusions maybe we just need to or this hypoxia, we've got a basic squad. They may not be all that comfortable with seeing a patient like this, as sick as this. I would assess their bag technique, maybe take over, do a good two-handed bag where you've got the providers squeezing the bag for you and you can get that good from above the patient's head, two-handed seal. Maybe put a peep valve on there uh, to see if, if this is if this truly is a pulmonary contusion, you know, five or ten a peep and a good seal. You may be able to get this dude sats up to 95, 98 percent, and then get your pre-ox while you're ready to take his take his airway. 
Yeah, I, I, I think that you know, good bag technique is going to be one of your first steps as you do this. And, and you're probably going to be kneeling them at the same time, especially if those diminished respirations continue uh, or even in the low oxygen saturations that continue through your, your good technique. But yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, good two-handed, uh, two-person technique. Uh, and, you know, you can, you do your coaching on the fly with the, with the BLS crew to ensure that they're doing that optimally while you're able to set up some of your equipment for some of the intubation and maybe while you're kneeling as well. I tend to still go anteriorly as opposed to, as opposed to axillary. Um, although I, I like Latimer generally have moved towards finger thoracostomies for those without pulses, um, or those who I know are too large that even my, you know, sort of a 10 gauge angiocath is not going to reach them. Um, the 10 gauges are definitely long enough to that, you know, it's definitely going to reach the intrathoracic cavity. So I think that would be my general approach would be to address back valve mass technique initially, get that solid and down, and you're simultaneously working on your preox at the same time, um, and then also simultaneously address the, the likelihood of the tension uh, pneumothorax. I agree. When I climb in the back of a squad and I see that the patient is being bagged, if the patient's pulse ox is great, upper 90s, they probably don't need to be bagged. Sometimes they do, but uh, they probably could stop bagging. And if I climb in the back of the squad and the pulse ox is hypoxic, I'm not going to delegate that bagging. I'm going to make sure that it is done optimally. A couple of nasal trumpets, assuming the mid-face is stable, definitely a peak valve and definitely a manometer that I'm looking at, making sure I'm keeping it in the green so that I'm not insufflating the stomach. Yeah, absolutely. A peep valve is huge. In my opinion, we shouldn't be bagging unless you got a peep valve on board. As Dr. Carlton says, if you if you aren't bagging well, like bag better. If bagging's not working, bag better. Uh, put plastic in every orifice that you can. Put a peep valve in. Use better technique. Bag better, uh, and, it, and it, it'll work. I think those that was a great point that was that was brought up by uh, by one of our residents in the discussion. Now that we uh, let's say we have needled him, we have uh, bagged better. And our oxygenation has improved. Our hemodynamics are kind of about the same. You know, maybe a little bit less tachycardic. Blood pressures maybe a little bit higher, but still, still on the marginal side. What are you guys going to do next? I think uh, definitely um, making sure we have IV access in this patient. Hopefully, that would be happening simultaneously. You know, you take a look, see, quick, quick pass, see if you can get an IV. Hopefully, the nurse is trying that. You're going to need multiple points, and this guy with his mental status, nobody's going to fault you for putting an IO in this guy while you're trying to get IV access in him as well. Uh, so you've at least got one port while your uh, flight nurse is looking for a line. So definitely that needs to happen uh, kind of simultaneously to pre-oxygenating this patient. But then the next step would be intubation or RSI. Let's talk about uh, sort of the approach to RSI. Obviously, we're going to do a little bit of resuscitation beforehand, try and get the hemodynamics as optimized as possible. We're pre-oxygenating. Let's say we've gotten his O2 set up to 100 with good bagging. What are we going to use for induction and paralysis? Bill, what what are you going to use? So as with any innovation, uh, first I clarify in my head my indications, and we've already talked about that. We've got several. Second question, is it crash? And the answer is no. He's sick, but he's not a crash airway. Third question, is it difficult? Do I predict difficulty? So we haven't talked too much about whether or not we predict anatomic difficulty here, Jeff. It sounds like the case was built in terms of uh, not really. Is that accurate? Yeah, from my reading of the case, it looks like uh, you know he has a generally favorable airway anatomically speaking. 
So we do have at least one factor of anatomic difficulty being that he's got a C-collar, but otherwise we don't predict any anatomic difficulty per se. However, this is super key. we got to realize that we have every predictor of physiologic difficulty. Uh, the, the mnemonic is HOP, made famous by Weingart, and uh, he's got all three. He's got uh, hemodynamic problems, he's got oxygenation problems, and in all likelihood, he's got pH problems as well. So we've got a lot of work to do uh, in, in the way we finesse this RSI uh, to minimize the chance of further harming him physiologically. Um, so in terms of what drugs I want to use without question, I want to use ketamine as my induction agent just because of its hemodynamic profile uh, in a guy who's in shock. Um, in terms of paralytic, uh, so uh, newsflash for those who haven't heard, Sagamidex is apparently cleared by the FDA in America, so we may well be moving to rock always, but we don't actually have it on board the aircraft yet. So you could make an argument for sucks, you could make an argument for rock. There's, uh, there's, there, there are good arguments to be made either way, and I've got your back either way you go in this guy. He doesn't have an obvious contraindication to sucks, so I would be okay with sucks. And he's not like super combative to the point whereby you know you're going to need him paralyzed for everybody's safety during the whole flight. So I would be okay with sucks. I would also be okay with rock. I would not pre-medicate this guy with lidocaine or fentanyl. Um, the, the literature for benefits of premedication is pretty weak, but in a case where you are starting hypotensive and you're talking about giving a large dose of a drug which will make anybody more hypotensive, I just fail to see how the benefit could ever outweigh the risk. So there is no way I would premedicate this guy. You, you, you with me on those drug choices? Absolutely. Yeah. Now, the one really interesting drug-related question around this RSI uh, is whether or not we give a push-dose presser. Absolutely. And uh, Latimer, you, uh, you've you talked nationally about this. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. This is a guy that if I had half a second while we're pre-oxygenating him, getting access and doing this, I would pull up a, uh, a little stick of, of push-dose epi on this guy. We know he's got a – if his blood sugar and the Narcan doesn't do anything, if we're not worried about that, we know this guy has a TBI, a severe TBI. And we know that hypotension's bad. We know that hypoxia is bad. We know hypercarbia is bad. He's likely hypercarbic with what we're seeing on this guy because it doesn't appear that he was getting ventilated all that well uh, or that he was ventilating all that well before we got there. Um, so he's probably got the kind of the trio there that's likely to end in a bad outcome no matter what we do and getting this guy to the hospital. So I really want to make sure that we're perfusing that injured brain tissue and uh, working on that hypoxia. I know that uh, it's a little sacrilege to give epinephrine in hemorrhagic shock, um, but there may be a component of obstructive shock here, and, and who knows there. Probably it's not effective there either, but the whole thought of breaking up this clot that's forming in this permissive hypotension model with epinephrine, again, that maybe is a little bit under fire right now. I would totally pull up a push-dose epinephrine in this gentleman, and... Uh, predicting that he's probably going to get even more hypotensive as we change him from a, a negative pressure to a positive pressure uh, intrathoracic system. And um, I, would, I would definitely do that, specifically because of the TBI in this particular case. I agree. And so just to be clear, same case without TBI, no push-dose pressor, but because of the TBI and the, way, uh, the knowledge that we have that hypotension worsens mortality in TBI, um, I, I'm with you. I would do it too. Yeah, no, absolutely. If they were 
super low on their blood pressure, then I, I would, uh, even if they didn't have the TBI, then I, maybe I'm considering it. Um, but usually I'm just infusing some, some volume and that volume is going to correct that hypotension in this situation rapidly. You know, hopefully that's blood, but it could also be crystalloid if you're, if you don't have the blood available to you. Um, and then you're going forward on your intubation. Uh, and then in a non-TBI patient, you know, this was brought up a little bit on the discussion too. And, and you brought it up not just now to the concept of sort of a, uh, permissive hypotension or sort of a hypotensive resuscitation um, in these in these polytrauma patients that have these low riding marginal blood pressures but not necessarily frankly hypotensive it may be better to let them ride with maps of 55 50 or so for fear that higher pressures could dislodge whatever fragile clot that they have in place now and, and worsen bleeding. Um, but in the TBI patient, that is completely off the table. We need to keep their blood pressure up. We need to correct their oxygenation. We need to make sure they're not hypercarbic. Um, and, and we really need to pay attention to those things because those things we absolutely know with great evidence that they worsen outcomes if they are hypotensive, hypoxic, or hypercarbic. All right. Let's also kind of keep it on the TBI uh, on the TBI treatment pathway. Um, wasn't brought up a whole lot. Uh, hypertonic on this this individual. Let's say we've gotten them intubated now. We're packaging them. We've gotten them now to the back of the helicopter. Who's hanging hypertonic on them? I would. I would do it with the knowledge that there is not great evidence in somebody who at this point lacks evidence of herniation for hyperosmolar therapy. But at the same time, there is not any evidence of harm. And really the only way that we could harm him is if it extravasates. And even even in that realm with 3%, that's not a big deal. So I would empirically give him hypertonic. I would certainly be elevating the head of the bed, which yes, you can do even if the patient's on a backboard. You just got to put a little oomph into it. Um, and uh, how about you with the hypertonic? Yeah, I think uh, I think I would if we got to it. I think the blood product would be at the top of my list. Agreed. And and if we could get to TXA in this gentleman, I may even put that in before I did the hypertonic, um, unless he showed he blew a pupil or uh, was kind of um, mid range and fixed, and I was worried about a central herniation syndrome. That sort of stuff would drive me to do it. Again, you're totally probably not going to harm this guy with that. Um, one I, totally, thing, I totally agree. Blood products are even higher priority, but yes. Uh, the other thing to think about, too, would be making sure that once we do get this gentleman innovated, we're using inline and tidal um, monitoring on him and trying to target his end tidal around 35. To The data is for 35 to 40. I tend to go towards the 35 range. If this guy's paralyzed and you can control his ventilation completely, I'd shoot for 35 as well. So w- one point about that. We shoot for 35 if he's starting higher than that. Correct. But he's probably, because Correct. he's in shock, going to be starting lower. You're probably going to hook up that end title, and no matter what his PCO2 really is, his end is probably going to be in the 20s, I would guess, with this kind of shock. And if, therefore, if we decide, well, we're supposed to shoot for 35, so we're going to slow down our respiratory rate to 10, um, then we're actually potentially going to be adding respiratory acidosis to metabolic acidosis. So when somebody is in shock, 
we don't we don't try to fix the end tidal. We let it ride low where it is until we can get a blood gas and find out where that PCO2 really is. I doubt during this flight that we're going to have a chance to use our EPOC device to actually get a blood gas. But if it's if it's really long and we've got everything else done, it would be nice to know. And a good rule of thumb with that is that you always hyperventilate for TBI is the way to think of it. Don't ever hypoventilate to get to your targets. And I'd, I'd heard that in another uh, FOMED podcast someplace. Yeah. But, but that covers your bases in a situation just like that. Although you, you only hyperventilate as a last resort. Correct. It's, Correct. it's not like it's 1999 and we hyperventilate every TBI. To like 25. Correct. Right. Yeah, you'll... The, the point would be if your end title is low to start off with, you're going to set them at a rate that would be commensurate with their natural conditions. So you're going to set them at a rate of 16, 18 uh, or so uh, as opposed to hyperventilating to 24 unless you see them, frankly, herniating in front of you, in which, uh, at which point in time as a latch-stitch effort you would consider the, the more aggressive ventilation strategy. But you're not going to set them at a rate of 6 because their end title is 24. Right. Excellent. All right, so make it a little bit more complicated. We have this gentleman. We're packaging him up uh, to go. He has just been intubated, and he loses his pulses uh, as we're sort of wheeling him to the aircraft. What now? Uh, I guess the very first thing that I'm thinking is, do I still have a waveform on that monitor? Uh, Because if I don't, then I'm worried that that tube is not in the right place. Now, a a lot of people mistakenly think that if somebody's in cardiac arrest uh, because your end tidal number is very low, that you don't expect to see a waveform. And that is incorrect. You still, even if the number is only five, you still expect to see a boxy waveform. And if you don't see that, then you cannot assume that your tube is, is in the right place. So, uh, I'm, but I'm assuming that I do see some sort of a boxy waveform. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So I feel good that my tube is still in. Um, I, I would have already, before I even left the ambulance, I would have had this guy's pelvis bound. But if for some reason that's not done yet, uh, I'm not going to call a motorcycle uh, multi-trauma case without binding the pelvis. Um, it, you know, is it really realistic to think that you could get somebody back after arrest by binding their pelvis? I don't know, but I'm, I'm going to sleep better knowing that I've done it. However, I would have already done it. I never would have left the squad without having this guy's pelvis bound. Um, and one thing that somebody mentioned, delegating binding the pelvis to EMS, I, I don't delegate uh, binding the pelvis because I find that a lot of people um, don't really know how to do it right. They put it on too high. So I, I vastly prefer to, to do that myself or to do that with the help of somebody else. Um, now, back to the case where I'm outside the squad, but I'm not in the helicopter and the guy just arrested. I feel that my tube is in place at this point. I'm, I'm absolutely empirically uh, doing finger thoracostomy on both sides. And uh, Latimer, what else would you do? If, uh, if we have that blood product available, um, if you need do the finger thoracostomy as you're confident you're in both, you know, both pleura, uh, pleural spaces on both sides, you're confident the endotracheal tube's in place, this is, especially if we're looking at a PEA on the monitor, presumptively just really bad hypotension. So th- these are the perfect candidates for giving the blood product kind of as quick, quick as we can, FFP and PRBCs, and see if we can get a pulse back with that. Um, obviously, 
a needle pericarditis is on the algorithm, I'm not sure I would jump right to that in a patient like this just because it's blunt trauma and that would be really unlikely. Is it possible? Sure. Some rib fractures causing some penetrating type mechanism to the pericardium causing a, a pericardial tamponade, but I think it's pretty unlikely. I, I would not call the code without doing that, I don't think, but I think it would be later on my, on my list. Um, the other thing is if we are in an aircraft that has ultrasound, that could be immensely helpful in this patient. Um, but uh, getting blood product in him while we're running the code, I think, would be my next step. Agreed. If we do have ultrasound um, and we see organized cardiac activity, then I would be pretty tempted to just go ahead and load and assume that he's not really in full arrest. He's just really hypotensive. So that would be nice to have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, giving this guy a lot of a lot of product uh, and a lot of volume is going to be is going to be key. Uh, and and you know, quickly doing the bilateral finger thoracostomies as well. So let's say we we do that. We start some volume on him, bilateral finger, finger thoracostomy, and now we've got uh, a pulse back. Load and go as fast as possible. Absolutely. Okay. Now let's say we've done that. Still no pulse back. We've worked on him now for. 15, 20 minutes, what now? So uh, this is where things get really uh, tricky and, uh, and emotions tend to run high among uh, uh, arrests that occur on scene, especially after arrests that happen after air care arrives. So on the one hand, if you go ahead and fly somebody who is definitely in full arrest, um, you are potentially adding a lot of expense to the system uh, for something that is likely not going to have anything remotely like a good outcome, and you may be delivering some false hope to some people, to family, and so forth. On the other hand, if you if you don't, sometimes people don't understand why uh, you you know took the trouble to fly all the way there and then you didn't take the patient away to the hospital and so feelings can be uh, hurt on that so it's 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 challenging I think we always have to give ourselves the f- the freedom to make some decisions based on case-by-case factors for instance if we do have organized cardiac activity on ultrasound if we have a higher than expected end title for somebody who's in arrest. Like if I've got an end title that's 25, I'm really wondering if this patient's in full arrest. They may be, but that's pretty atypical. If I've got a nice, very narrow QRS on my PEA and it's a tachycardic PEA, again, I'm, I'm thinking this patient's really not in full arrest. They may just be really hypotensive. Um, if that patient is a kid, I'm going to be more likely to load them in arrest. If that patient is a cop or a firefighter, I'm going to be more likely to load them. And if there's some sort of an angry mob on scene that is not going to understand and is going to put your safety at risk, I'm going to load them. That's, that situation is rare, but it has happened. So um, if you are new to this job, look to your more experienced partner to help you make those decisions. If the arrest happens after you have already loaded the patient in the helicopter, so you loaded them with a pulse and then they arrest, I would I would just go uh, as a as a rule of thumb, uh, as long as you know the pilot says that it's safe to do so. So uh, I I don't think if the arrest happens after loading, we should take people back off. Yeah, I agree. Uh, great points there. Excellent. Uh, let's talk about that that situation where this is a kid now not arrested but. 
Same patient, essentially, except instead of 56, they're seven years old. Dr. Latimer, what are some of the, what are the big things that change that are different in the seven-year-old patient than, this, than the 56-year-old patient? Your big thing in this situation initially is getting in that mindset, because most of us are adult emergency physicians come into this. We can't really spout the doses and equipment sizes right off the top of our head for most of these kids. So having something that can reduce that cognitive load, whether that's an app on your phone or a Braslow tape or some sort of a folder that comes with you in your equipment bag, but having some way to quickly identify drug doses, endotracheal tube size, some things like that, uh, if you don't know that off the top of your head. So that changes and, things. And speaking of that, if, if you knew on the way to the scene that it was a kid, you, you need to do everything you can to try to get a weight or an age or something so you can uh, go ahead and write out on a piece of tape what your drug doses, what your equipment sizes are going to be to, again, decrease that cognitive load. Absolutely. By the way, if this is a kid, what the hell was he doing riding a motorcycle? <laughs> Don't ask questions, Bill. <laughs> the kid, right. the kid right. was on the ATV. <laughs> oh, sorry. It's <laughs> always an ATV rollover. Um, so... This, uh, this particular patient, a couple of other things. A lot of this would be very similar. Bagging the patient correctly, addressing thoracic trauma, um, uh, resuscitating the kid, RSI, drug choice. This, this wouldn't really change. The big changes here would be with what we carry, two units of packed red blood cells and two units of never frozen plasma. Um, we do not administer liquid plasma to children. And that's uh, per the request of the Hawksworth uh, Center and Transfusion Medicine. The reason for that is that we carry, uh, we carry type A plasma in air care. The type AB is a universal donor, pla- donor plasma, but because type A is way more, uh, uh, way more plentiful, that's what we use. Their type A plasma has these anti-B antibodies in it that in patients that are small, that have a smaller circulating blood volume, there's a theoretical risk of a transfusion reaction uh, that really uh, is not thought to play any role in adults, um, which is why we carry this. But uh, they've, they've asked specifically that we do not administer this to children. Um, so that changes things. And the other one is TXA, tranexamic acid. Um, we, uh, there's just not a lot of data, not enough data to show that this would be uh, safe or effective in a seven-year-old at this time. That may change in the future, but, but right now uh, we can't do either of those things. Yeah. And just so people are clear, frankly, if it's my kid... I think the TXA would work, and I would want them to have it. But um, we we have to practice collaboratively with uh, colleagues within our institution and with Children's. And right now, the the trauma surgeons at Children's are not on board with TXA, and uh, so we uh, we need to be collaborative with them. And uh, and in terms of the plasma restriction, it's it's specifically at 50 kilos. Correct. So if you did happen to have a kid who was bigger than 50 kilos, you could do the plasma. All right. Thanks, gentlemen. This has uh, been a great discussion, and uh, thanks, everybody, for contributing online. Uh, really have appreciated uh, the, the sort of dialogue back and forth. I think we're all learning a little bit from it. I know I learn something every time I go through these again, and it's great to sort of mentally walk through these really challenging cases uh, and, and see how other people would manage things. So uh, I appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. It was uh, – I think we had like 50 comments uh, on this post, including uh, from other continents, from all around America, and uh, obviously from our from our own folks who are on orientation, and all of it was uh, was was really well thought out and and very inspiring to me. So thanks to everybody out there. 
So uh, we will have uh, a total of uh, three more of these coming your way over the course of the, the spring. Uh, so look forward to the next one uh, to be uh, published here in a couple weeks. So thanks, everybody, for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.